This episode of the EdSurge podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The online master's in elementary education program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That's emporia.edu grad. You've probably heard of the 10,000-hour rule. It was a key concept popularized by Malcolm Gladwell's blockbuster book, Outliers. As Gladwell tells it, the rule goes like this, that it takes 10,000 hours of intensive practice to achieve mastery of complex material, like playing the violin or getting as good at computer programming as Bill Gates, which is what Gladwell talks about a lot in his book. Gladwell describes one central study in particular. He says, quote, their research suggests that once a musician has enough ability to get into a top music school, the thing that distinguishes one performer from another is how hard he or she works. That's it. Not surprisingly, the research is a bit more complicated when you dig into it. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. So, for today's podcast, I talked with the co-author of the very study that Gladwell's talking about, Anders Ericsson, a professor of psychology at Florida State University. And it turns out that Ericsson's study shows there's another important variable that Gladwell does not focus on. That variable is how good the student's teacher is. Yes, practice is definitely important, according to Ericsson, and it's surprising how much it does take to master something complicated. But Erickson's research suggests that someone could practice for thousands of hours and still not be that master performer. They could be outplayed by someone who had practiced less, but had a teacher who showed them just what to focus on at a key moment in their practice regime. This professor is interested in what kinds of teaching techniques can help students get to that kind of mastery, not just in the arts, but in other fields, like medicine. So what lessons can educators take away from this scholar's research? And what advice does Erickson have for educators and students who are suddenly shifting to online teaching during COVID-19? Those were my key questions when I connected with Erickson last week via Zoom. Here are our highlights from that conversation. You, you are the person who wrote the, the, the academic paper that, that sort of started this idea of the 10,000-hour rule. And I guess I would love first for you to just describe in a nutshell what that paper's finding was well the way i kind of remember the paper was that we've been doing some research training uh students to improve their memory ability and found that you know we could improve it by a thousand percent uh, on certain tasks that had been used to measure short-term memory and that basically then opened up the possibility here that that it's not just sort of getting experience, but there are ways in which you can actually, you know, uh, design training that will actually improve people substantially. And, and that led us to ask, you know, if you go out and look in the real world, what are the kind of places where we would find that people consistently can produce individuals with a very high level of performance? And there's really no argument about that. Uh, and, and we ended up with music because music had had, you know, maybe three, 400 years of uh, basically establishing training environments 
and obviously within those environments, you know, you found that certain types of training work better than others. So that's kind of the backdrop that we then went to an academy in Berlin, where I was at the time at the Max Planck Institute, and now tried to basically pinpoint here what, and, and, and relating it to sort of the research that's been done in the labs, and trying to find here that, you know, getting immediate feedback and actually generating your performance. So very different from a lecture where you're just sort of listening. So I, I want to stop you there for one second because I, I want to make sure I, I, I like where you started from. So you really started from thinking that teaching could be improved if it's done in a certain way that's kind of and then you were like using a scientific hypothesis to see what would work. That, that's right. And, and I guess we've constrained ourselves to basically domains where you actually have agreement here about how you can actually measure performance objectively. So there's a lot of basically domains, uh, you know, politics, for example, where I don't know that people can actually have a good consensus here of, of who are the people who have truly mastered kind of the knowledge and the techniques that are basically uh, necessary and, and, and related here to somebody really mastering the domain. Okay, so that was your experimental design. So what did you find? So what we found was that this kind of individual instruction between a teacher who is now assessing an individual student as to what would be the next step for this student now to actually develop and improve. And then having that student going away with various kind of training advice and, and, and training techniques, spending <clears throat> maybe up to like 25 hours a week, now actually trying to make these changes, coming back to the teacher and then getting sort of feedback, but essentially, in order to successfully spend those 25 hours, they need to have developed mental representations about what they're trying to do, which should be above what they actually can do. And the training is a way here of actually allowing yourself to adapt and modify what you're doing so you can now match the desired level of performance. I guess, what did you take away from that? Is there any actionable advice? And I know sometimes research is done without necessarily giving universal advice, but what did you take away from, from that that maybe a professor or in a classroom could use? Well, I, I, I do think that if you look at the music school, this idea here of having the individual instruction and monitoring of a student and then having the student more or less spending most of the time by themselves, you know, achieving certain types of learning goals. I think there are similar kind of uh, situations, maybe, a, maybe more in the graduate education than in an undergraduate education, which is so dominated here by lectures and labs and, and stuff like that. But I think, you know, uh, even before we published this peak book, there were, you know, a few kind of teachers who kind of really basically said, I mean, what's the point here of having a teacher 
more or less doing the same performance year to year. I mean, that might be okay, you know, 300 years ago <clears throat> when you really didn't have another option to present the material. Uh, but now with videos, uh, basically, why don't you have the students actually look at the videos and then spend that hour time together, you know, more or less helping them apply these ideas where you can now as a lecturer give feedback and then hopefully here if you have labs you would be able to do that even more effectively in a smaller group setting but that idea here that you're actually having a goal uh, of what it is you want to achieve i think is is sort of the key thing and and that's one of the reasons why i've struggled a little bit with k through 12 and even college because nobody really wants to commit to basically what it is, how we can actually measure the outcome of the student and then basically work backwards from what it is that we want to produce to see how we can more effectively generate an environment within which students would actually be able to develop into these individuals that we ideally would like, you know, to basically give a good start here to their adulthood. Now, of course, years after your study came out, I believe, Malcolm Gladwell published a book where he mentioned um, the 10,000-hour rule, and that really brought it to the attention of a lot of people. Um, and I guess, uh, how do you feel about the way that was represented and kind of what was your reaction to that piece? But also, I'm curious years later whether you think it was good or, or bad that he did popularize that idea. Well, so, so let's start out where I think there's agreement between uh, us. And that has to do with this idea that if you want to be excellent at something, if you believe that if you have the right kind of gifts or whatever, that that will actually happen within six months or something like that you're mistaken because if we look at those people who are really successful, we can kind of see that there's this long prehistory of them gradually, uh, you know, developing their abilities that were important. So, so that part, I think we kind of agree on. Now, there's some problems, I guess, with the claim here about what counts as practice. And we argue that deliberate practice is actually something now where you have a teacher who actually knows more about effective training than the student who's actually now guiding the student to develop and actually now providing these training activities that has proven to be effective and achieving certain goals. Now, Gladwell, he was counting hours of working with computers or the Beatles playing music, which I, see more as experience as opposed to anything that meets those criteria of deliberate practice. Interesting. So in other words, those things he was using as his examples weren't what you were thinking. In fact, what sounds like what you were thinking is more akin to what is done at a teaching setting in a college or a school of like having a student do something and a professor or an expert saying, whoops, you know, no, and then think about what I just said and then go back, do some more that kind of actual give and take. Right, and, and then we have the issue here about the 10,000, <clears> which I think, you know, it doesn't make any scientific sense here to believe that 
there's some cells here counting up the number of hours and then you know, suddenly release themselves and become different. It makes one think of a learning Fitbit, right? You get your 10,000 steps or like the, there's some meter going. Right. And, and, and so, so the idea that we were arguing is that it's surprising how much practice seems to be necessary for people who are successful. And we even found here that when we compared the most successful with sort of less accomplished musicians playing the same instrument, we could actually see that, especially during adolescence, there was sort of a difference here in how much time they actually uh, dedicated here to this type of practice. So I'm sure you've done plenty of other studies in the meantime. What are some of the, what are some of the other um, findings that you or research you've been working on around um, improving teaching and learning, if any? Well, I, I would say that in the last four or five years, uh, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time talking to medical educators, and especially surgeons, because that's sort of interesting, because surgeons, they actually start out with the technical training when they're, you know, maybe 25 or something like that. So they actually do have now to acquire a new skill that they didn't have. And that, I think that's where I've seen sort of the most interest here in applying these ideas and really going away from kind of, again, which I think the education in medicine was dictated very much by actually using the students as being kind of assistants. So, rather than asking here, what is the ideal educational experience for this medical student or medical resident, that would be kind of different from, you know, how can I basically get the help that I need during surgery? And then basically they can kind of learn here as I'm doing the surgery by observing and maybe helping out with, you know, one or few things that are much easier and then eventually taking on harder things. But now I think with simulators and especially with video uh, capabilities, we can actually give the students a much more effective time. So it's not like they have to, you know, be in a four hour surgery and then maybe there's three minutes worth when you actually do the really difficult part of basically, uh, you know, doing surgery on the heart or whatever. But that basically is not a very effective way here of standing there for four hours to get that little exposure. So imagine if we had videotapes, we could actually give you sort of a situation and then with the simulator, more or less actually put you in a situation where you would have to respond to a making a decision and or respond to some complication. So that would now make it so much more similar to the music where you know music students they don't have to play through the whole piece they basically identify what the difficulty is and then you know they focus in on that and then basically they can go back to the piece because obviously they have to integrate it but it's very different from this idea that you know you're going to have to be there and basically just wait for something that's relevant. And often some of the surgeons don't really do a good job 
communicating here exactly what they're thinking and doing, so it's not a particularly effective learning environment. After the break, how researchers can tell the difference between a great chess player and a mediocre one by hearing them describe just one move. And what that tells us about finding better ways to teach. Stay with us. Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-credit-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that, regardless of their background of study. The coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they will also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license, depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu grad to learn more. That address again is emporia.edu grad. Now back to the episode. We're doing this series of stories on learning engineering, and um, it's, you know, some people might be doing it without using that term, but the idea of, you know, trying to make professors or classroom teaching more rigorous or more kind of self-studied or turning classrooms into kind of laboratories as, as people go and sort of refining their techniques. I'm curious if that's um, something, a kind of an, a, an idea you're aware of, and it sounds like your work kind of fits into that to me, but I, I'm not sure whether how you see it. I actually started out and spent like three years uh, towards becoming a nuclear physicist, uh, sort of engineering at the Royal Institute of Technology. Wow. And uh, I found that I was much more interested sort of in doing research and that basically the research that was done on the nuclear reactor was really not something that I would be likely to contribute to within the next 15 years. So, so I found that seeking out people at the university in, psych, in the psychology department really allowed me kind of to get into research and especially I'm interested in how can you really improve people's ability to think? And the first thing was, how can we even understand what people are thinking? And, and that was my dissertation was on having people think out loud when they're solving problems. So that was kind of my starting point. And, and I think that's basically where I go back to again and again, when we've looked at say chess masters and trying to understand now what's different about them compared to less skilled players. It's a problem here. I mean, you can't really do very much during tournaments because you know, they're focused on that. But what's interesting is that there were a kind of de group, uh, uh, a Dutch researcher who was also a very good chess player. And what he found was that by selecting out chess positions and just asking people to make a single move, you know, the next move, you can actually measure and find the differences between the good players, the excellent players, and under those circumstances, you could actually have them think out loud as they're selecting this move. And what you find is that the thought processes are fundamentally different from the experts compared to the less skilled individuals. Is there an example that you can quickly describe of like what that difference sounds like or is 
characterize it? I would say that, you know, if I were to just summarize, there seems to be that ability of actually thinking deeply. So when you have a chess position, you know, if you do this, what would be the best counter move that your opponent has? And once you establish that, you can now ask, what would I do if he or she does that? And so on. And what you find is that the experts can go maybe about five to 10 moves deep. And what they actually find when they're in, you know, sixth or seventh move is that they overlooked something. And now they actually go back and explore another move that ends up being superior to the ones that they originally kind of considered. One of the big issues that has come up with the 10,000 hour rule as well is is whether it means that anyone with 10,000 hours or whatever the number is could get to some sort of expert status. Now, and I know you, it sounds like you've mentioned that you weren't, you know, you weren't, you were studying people that were excellent at violin. So that really wasn't the part of your study at that study. But I'm curious in the educational context, do you, does your research tell us anything about whether say in a technical subject like algebra or, you know, is it possible that if somebody devotes enough practice that anyone could, could kind of use um, the kind of overall philosophy that this suggests of like, if you, if you do this guided practice, you will, and spend the time, you will master it or get to a mastery or, or do we know yet whether kind of anyone that follows the regime will get there? So I would say that one of the kind of insights that came after our 93 paper, uh, you know, was that people were finding now students who had a teacher and their parents were supportive and they just didn't really kind of make any progress. So people then sort of, okay, you know, here we have what's sort of missing here. You know, some of the students, they're making progress and others are not. And then they actually had them videotaped and sometimes they were also asked to think out loud when they were basically practicing. And what you find is that those individuals who don't improve, they're really just repeating the same thing over and over, errors, everything. And it seems like they don't even are able to listen to the music that they're producing, which makes it almost impossible for them to intentionally try to change it. So now we basically see a lot of the prerequisites that, and and there have been other studies showing that if you have somebody who is motivated and sees in their future that they would like to play the instrument, they are actually showing progress. But those students who really sees this as something they have to do because of their parents for this, this current year, they don't show any progress. So basically, what I would say is that that once you can externalize the thought processes that are going in and the kind of focus and concentration that is really necessary to improve, at least you've been able to explain some of the more obvious individual differences in progress. Wow, so it is, I like this metaphor of like, the player who's not even listening to their own music. So this might be the student in a math class who's just not really engaged. It's just like, 
they're not learning. And, and, and I think there's a lot of evidence, especially from research on text comprehension, where you find exactly that difference that, you know, the weak comprehenders, they're more or less just kind of reading things aloud, whereas those individuals who score well here on, on comprehension tests after the reading the text, they're actually making associations and pulling in knowledge and, and in some ways creating now a rich structure of the text as opposed to just more or less reading it aloud. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening may have that experience as they think back on some intro class they weren't that into. Um, I, I am also curious um, about the idea of of accelerating it. One thing, again, like we could quibble over 10,000, 11,000, whatever hours, but the idea being that it takes, you know, a lot of hours to, of this guided practice to achieve mastery. Do you think there that by improving teaching methods that could be drastically reduced to, to maybe get it to a, you know, 5,000 hour or 1,000 hour instead, if, if something is done to make the teaching even more efficient? I, I think it depends on how you kind of define what it is that you really want to achieve. Uh, so I think the current educational system, and people have been criticizing this, particularly in medicine, is in order to get a college degree, you have to go through these courses with a passing grade. Now, that I think is fundamentally different from this idea of mastering an instrument where you can actually see how you're getting better and better and how you can compare yourself to people who are professionals and you have a sense here of, you know, what's different from what I can do and they can do and be motivated. And in some ways, find ways here of pulling things together. In my personal history, I would say, when I was a student, I always had this idea of what I wanted to do, which meant that when I took a course, I really had to work on trying to find out how that could possibly be of relevance to me with my ultimate goal. And I think if you have an educational system that really allows people to build up competences and being you know, examined and certified for being able to do these things, I think that kind of creates sort of a different environment where conceivably, and I've, I've been talking to some people here when it comes to training pilots and they're actually saying here that they're able now to actually get pilots the option of flying by themselves after maybe 25% of what was the typical curriculum that other pilots are requiring. So by having standards that actually allows you to send somebody up in an airplane that is worth probably more than their accumulated salary is, <clears throat> you know, that's the kind of reliance that I think we need. And I don't really, if looking at basically college students, what is it that you basically would be able to send them off to do uh, that basically they have been certified to be able to do? The other question I wanted to ask you about, we're all living all of a sudden in this pandemic in the last month or so that that is changing education very rapidly by 
having places suddenly go online only. I guess I'm curious, do you have any advice from your research or thoughts on this time from your research for those struggling to make this adjustment? Well, I think it fits in relatively nicely with this paradigm where, you know, you're actually finding a teacher that you would get, you know, some quality interactional time with who is now basically guiding you as to what you're going to be doing here, you know, during the 30 other hours of the week. Uh, and, and I think helping students actually have that self-confidence that they can do this. And I think in music, it's kind of clear that if a teacher tells you here what you're going to be doing, and you can't really image what it sounds like eventually, you're going to have a hard time going and practice and producing that. So you need to develop these representations that allow you to image what you want to be able to do. So you can actually use that and then listen to what it sounds like when you're doing it and iteratively now eliminating these differences. And I would argue that there's a lot of learning activities when you're reading and trying to comprehend something that you can conceive will build up skills where you're testing yourself or you're at least aware of what you don't understand. So you could go on the internet or contact your teacher and say, hey, I don't really understand. You know, why is this such and such? Because that's exactly the kind of interactions that music students have with their teacher. You know, you told me to do this and look, I can't do it. And then the teacher would say, well, you know, so this is what you're doing. You really need to change, you know, you basically the way you hold your arm because now you're going to have more control. Okay, so look what I'm doing now and then go back. And, and basically those music teachers I've talked to say that they feel that that correction may actually be the most important influence that they have on their students. And finally, I'm just curious, have you kept in touch with Malcolm Gladwell? Have never uh, interacted with him indirectly or in any way. Uh, and, and people ask me, you know, why wouldn't he contact me before he, because typically publishers do that. I think there was a little bit of a problem because I had a relatively close connection with the Freakonomics guys and they had actually written on some of the topics that he covers in his book, you know, like for example, you know, the relative age effect and stuff like that. So I could imagine that he didn't want to basically involve me in his book because that potentially could, you know, lead to sort of problematic interactions here in him releasing the book. That That's the best I can do. Oh, wow. I, I guess I expected he at least had this kind of conversation with you, but I, I it's interesting. Um, I, it's been a pleasure and thank you again. Hopefully we do talk again. Okay. Um, well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. I have not done 10,000 hours of podcasting, but we did just hit our 300th episode. So if you're new, there's a huge library you can go binge of past episodes, including last week's interview with YouTube star John Green, or any of our ongoing series of students and educators talking about how they're keeping going during COVID-19. If you like the show, please subscribe and tell a friend about us on social media. That's definitely the best way to support the podcast. 
This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. I want to stop and give special thanks this week to our whole journalism team here at EdSurge. Tony Wan, Stephen Nunu, Emily Tate, and Becky Koenig. You've heard all their voices um, in past episodes doing interviews, and you're going to keep hearing from all of them in the weeks and months ahead. It is a great team and a super talented bunch. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening.